I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Well, hello and welcome to Livewire. My name is Luke Burbank. I am your host. Uh, this show was recorded at the Fremont Abbey in Seattle, Washington, and featured a variety of fun, interesting, thought-provoking guests, including a couple of actual friends of mine, Jeannie Yandel and Eula Scott Bino. They host a podcast called Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace. Also, a uh, Livewire favorite, comedian Kurt Brownoller. And we'll talk to a new friend of the show. Her name is Laura Pryor Palmer. And some years ago, she decided to go to Mongolia with, like, no training or practice and ride in this unbelievably grueling horse race called the Mongol Derby. And then we have what we think might be the first openly gay country music band maybe in the world. They're called Lavender Country, and they are going to dazzle you coming up here in just a few moments. The theme that we picked for this week's show is wild cards. And as you get to meet these guests, that'll make more sense. Uh, we asked the crowd at the Fremont Abbey to fill out a little audience card. We asked them, how do you show your wild side? And as we often do, we started the show by me and our announcer, Elena Passarello, trying to answer this question for ourselves. So let's pick things up there on stage at the Fremont Abbey in Seattle. I have to say, um, my answer to that question is, it's not even really about my wild side, but it does involve wildlife. Okay. So can I, can I share that here at the beginning of the show? I am very interested in where this is going. My wife and I had a wild animal living in our house <laughs> last night. It started last night about 9 p.m. local time when our cat trotted up to the outside of a sliding glass door with a tiny baby mouse. <gasps> in its mouth. Now, the mouse was fine. The mouse was unhurt. A little shooken up, let's be honest. Sure. We decided to put it in a box, and then the next morning, which would be today, take it to a place called the Wildlife Rescue Center near where Aww. we live. We are like frequent flyers at the Wildlife <laughs> Rescue Center. You have a punch card. <laughs> yeah, my, I should say my wife. Yeah, she brings one more animal in, and her next sub sandwich is free, um, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Nice. So... The woman there takes the box, takes it into the back of the room, and comes back 
And I can only imagine, like, that one Nazi from The Sound of Music when he realized the Von Trapps have left. She comes back and she says, I have bad news. The mouse chewed a hole in the box and escaped in the middle of the night. And by the way, it's not a mouse. It's a full adult deer mouse. So you brought an empty box to the Well, first we brought a pretty much grown, adult, savvy rodent into the house. (laughs) That we were like, oh, it's so cute. And it was like, I'm 27 (laughs) in mouse years. Stop patronizing me. And then it proceeded to go Steve McQueen on it and escape from the box. It's still somewhere in our house right now. How do you show your wild side, Elena? Well, it's uh, related, I guess. I have a sort of vermin-related habit that I engage in that's quite wild. I'm curious to see where this is going. Well, you know, we have, like, in the refrigerator, we have, like, a block of cheese that my partner will, like, chop up to put on sandwiches or shred to put on tacos. Sometimes when I'm feeling, like, like really, like, ah, like a rebel, I'll just, like, open the fridge door and just bite it and then just put it back in the fridge. So when he comes yeah, back. That's, I think they describe that as the imperfect crime. Because yeah. isn't there an outline of your actual bite in yeah. the cheese? My dental records yes. are all over like the evidence. you're teeing it up for the investigators yeah. later. But hey, man, it makes me feel alive. So I just keep doing it. Yeah? <laughs> Thank God the listeners actually do some wild things. Yeah. Uh, what did they send in? What are the ways that they show their wild side? Yeah. Biting a block of cheese is nothing compared to what Mark wrote about. Mark rides his bike his motorcycle with no helmet while listening to NPR on the motorcycle radio. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love the image of that. Yeah. That's a wild thing that's frankly a dangerous thing to not have a helmet on. Yeah. But then also kind of a surprisingly Seattle thing to just be <laughs> bumping the record on KUOW or whatever. <laughs> All right, one more. Uh, here's one from Nick. Nick joins work conference calls while wearing his bathrobe. Mm. <laughs> do you ever do that? No, I'm wearing a three-piece suit the entire time. But I have definitely been, I I have been tempted. Well, I work from home. When I'm not doing this, a lot of the time I am working at home. And you do as well, Mm because you're a writer. Mm -hmm. And it's it's tempting to not put on, like, you know, normal, I guess, awake time clothes. Yeah. But I feel at the, if I have not changed my clothes from what I was sleeping in, and then it's time to go to sleep again, I feel like I'm not living, in the words of Taco Bell, Moss. (laughs) <laughs> you know, like I do, I feel kind of bummed out at myself. Uh, we have two guests just off stage who did something pretty wild not that long ago. They decided to start a podcast. That's maybe not the wild part, but it's about sexism in the workplace. But they also decided they weren't going to soft pedal it when it came to the title of the show. The show is called Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace. It's great. It comes from KUOW here in Seattle. Please welcome Eula Scott Bino and Jeannie Yandel to Livewire. <laughs> Hello, Jeannie and Eula. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having us. Yes. I think people might hear the title of your show, Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace, and they might say, uh, how do you know that my workplace is sexist? How yeah. is that a given? Yeah. Are there know, people there? Yeah. That literally, <laughs> that's, Are there humans? Wait. I work... I just realized. 
I work at home by myself. The, the sexism is coming from inside the house. Yeah, you're there. You're, yep. you're still in the building. Yeah, it's happening. I mean, how, explain, if you can, to people that hear that and they think, well, I don't work at a sexist place or I'm not a sexist person. Yeah. How, how can you say that all workplaces are sexist? Yeah, and I'm glad that you're asking because we've never gotten an email asking exactly that question before. So Seriously? <laughs> no, we get those emails all the time. Oh, okay, yeah. fine. So, um, uh, wow. Yeah. How about your next show is Battle Tactics for Your Sarcastic Workplace? <laughs> That's beautiful. So the thing that got me was just that there is a huge body of research, like a 40-year-old body of social science and economic research. She's right. Pointing to all of these different things, from gender wage gaps to promotion gaps to how some people are perceived in the workplace versus other people, right? And those things break down along gender and race lines. You know, I don't know. It sort of made me think about climate change. And like 10 years ago, we would be like, we have to have a climate change denier to, you know, so we can hear the debate. You Which know, is a very big thing in public radio, yeah. in particular yes. this idea of wanting to have both sides represented. Yeah, as though both sides are valid and you need to hear both sides, right? And I kind of got to a point where I was like, I don't actually think having a debate about whether sexism exists is, is helpful in any way because there's a whole body of research to show us that it's real and, and, and it's true and that, you know, there are real economic consequences if we don't do something about it. Absolutely. You, you guys... We're talking to Jeannie Yandel and Eula Scott Bino. Their podcast is called Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace. You guys had an episode a while ago that I thought was particularly fascinating. You started by playing the tape, the infamous tape from Access Hollywood, where the current president saying really awful stuff about, about uh, assaulting women. No. And you didn't focus on that part of the tape. You actually focused on the other guy on the tape, Billy Bush. <laughs> Mm, the, yeah. the, the reporter. And I, I, what I, one of the things that I was surprised by and I thought was interesting was I felt like you guys had, on some level, a certain amount of empathy, at least for the experience of being in a moment where you know that you're kind of going along with something that's not okay, right. but you yeah. don't really know how to hit the brakes on it. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was, a, why did you guys decide to talk about, about his part of that story? Mm. We've all been there. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot more relatable than sort of just the terrible person who says and does terrible things, mm -hmm. right? Like, the reality is we have all had a moment where we're like, uh -huh. Uh, and we're not mm -hmm. really sure what to do or say, and we don't want to upset anybody, and we don't want to make anybody, whatever. Like, there's all kinds of stuff that goes through your head. Billy Bush was a really good example of that. Mm -hmm. You know, we wanted to explore that, because, you know, I don't want to speak for you, but I know you've been there. I know I've been there. And I think a lot of men go there. One of the hardest challenges of men, especially in this new era of Me Too and the conversation being started, so many of them have been witness to things that we as women don't get the opportunity to be witness to, and they also have had a hard time challenging it in so many different spaces. And so we were really led into a space that they would never invite us into, right where they're talking the real talk and I've been I have guy friends so I've been in those spaces kind of sometimes but to be in those spaces as a woman you often have to align yourself with the men right you have to be like yeah she is crazy when she's making complete sense right and complete and I and I did the same thing as her yesterday yeah um, yeah, so I mean, I think that's the hardest part too. We wanted to give people an opportunity to say, we've all been there, we've all been challenged by it. How do we unpack it and what do we do to make sure that in the next circumstance, we don't walk away feeling just as aligned with the, with the worst person for saying the worst things, Yep. right? Yeah. All right, we need to take a, a quick break. This is Livewire from PRI. We are talking to Jeannie Yandel and Eula Scott Bino. Don't go anywhere. Livewire is supported in part by Fully. Have you ever noticed how kind of not great you feel after you sit at work all day? Truth of the matter is your chair is probably part of the problem. Most chairs and desks, they restrict movement, which leaves your body kind of achy, 
Now we'd like to tell you about Fully, designer and collector of standing desks, chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage you to move so you will feel better at the end of your day. Uh, I use a Fully TikTok stool when I am recording these messages, and it has really changed my whole kind of physicality. After a long day, and I know it doesn't sound like a real job, maybe because it isn't, but after a long day of recording things at my home studio, sitting on a TikTok stool, I feel great. I don't feel like I've been ossifying for the last eight hours. I feel like I'm ready to go take on my evening. Uh, so I can't recommend fully highly enough. Get your body moving in your workspace like I've done. Go to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. Fully, desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. This week we're at the Fremont Abbey in Seattle, and we are talking to Jeannie Yandel and Eula Scott Bino. Their show is Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace. Can I run through a few episode titles from the show and ask you to kind of give a a Cliff's Notes version of, of kind of what the answer to the question posed in the, in the, the show title was. Uh, one show was called Help, My Coworkers Don't Take Me Seriously. Yeah. What's your advice to somebody who's experiencing that? We had a bunch of advice there. I mean, one thing was, you know, results matter more than how people perceive you, right? So uh, somebody is going to recognize that you're doing a good job. You can still be a butt kicker, even if the people you're surrounded by don't get it. Uh, which could also lead you to a job where people do take you seriously, right? Mm -hmm. And really good tactics for how to show up despite that, right? Because sometimes you can't change people's minds, but on paper you can make sure that everything you do is credited. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I see. So, like, keep the receipts, as it were. Yeah, in a lot of ways. I mean, shoot, because they're keeping theirs. Yep. Yep. That sounds almost like something that you might hear in therapy, talking Mm -hmm. about a relationship. Like, you can't control other people's behavior. All you can do is think about how you're showing up to the situation. Mm -hmm. I mean, keep HR on speed dial. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, What about this uh, episode recently of Battle Tactics? Don't bring cupcakes to work if you're a woman. Don't do it. Okay. (laughs) Who knows about office housework? Show of hands. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Right. So this idea that, like, women are there to be team players, to be pleasers, right? To make sure everybody's really happy. And so one of the things that you can do is bring cupcakes to work. There was a story about a woman whose whole team got mad at her for doing her job. So to make up for it, she brought cupcakes for everybody, and they just basically stopped listening to her. There's tons of research that says stuff like that can just... They expect you to keep doing it, and then when you don't, you're not doing your job. You know, it was interesting doing that episode because we're talking about how you pigeonhole yourself sometimes in that spot. And my, like my first week, I made everybody personalized loaves of banana bread. I know bread. you did. It was so great. Yeah, because I was I like, know. like me, like me. But also, if you expected that from me every week, it would not happen. <laughs> and it just, I just don't want you to think that that's all I am either. Yeah. Are a lot of these tactics a kind of case-by-case case and situational? Like, yes. you can't really make a blanket rule. Yeah, because uh, you know, Eula, you're you're making banana bread, but which you are allowed to do, but it also doesn't mean that you have to then just be kind of like the office, yeah, uh, you know, homemaker, as it were. But at the same time, I've, I'm sure I've had jobs where I, I've been that kind, and then I've been seen as office housekeeper. You know, yes. I think that the dynamics of our team have, are really built around producing a show that we want to be the greatest it can be, so we see each other equally, and we know what we all bring to the team. But I know I've been in positions before where I'm like, these dudes. Don't pay attention to anything unless you snack them up first. (laughs) 
Uh, what about uh, a show that, uh, that you did recently, Why Women of the Supreme Court Get Interrupted More Often? That's a real thing that's... That's a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> there was a study in 2015 that found the women whose Supreme Court justices get interrupted three more times by the male justices. Basically, the male justices never get interrupted by the advocates, the attorneys arguing at court, but the women Supreme Court justices get interrupted uh, all the time, right? And these, these, these attorneys are their subordinates. Mm -hmm. So there's a subordinate to RBG interrupting her on the regular. Yep. Do you uh, feel like things are actually changing? I mean, could there be a day when the title of your show is anachronistic and not accurate? That'd yes. be a good problem to have. So Who said guys, ah? I would love to not have this job anymore. That would be okay. I wish people could see my, my facial expression is doubtful, but my actual self, I'm the most optimistic person you'll ever meet. I mean, I'm a black woman who's surviving. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so I'm trying every day. And I actually think that if we uh, have conversations with our children, I mean, the day-to-day -day and the change within self is really valuable, but if we acknowledge our differences of, from the very beginning and also the boxes that we're put in, like... If we told little girls at three, like in a really casual way, like, oh, that dude's not playing with you because he thinks girls aren't as fun to play with. Like if we just were honest that way, we would unpack it and, 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 and solve it. But we wait until we're like 34 and 45 yeah, to be like, you know, you know what? Yeah. This is, we should start working on this. Yeah. Sometimes I think things are changing and sometimes I'm like, rut row. Right, <laughs> My daughter's right. going to definitely have to deal with all this garbage too. I don't mm -hmm. know. Yeah. But we're going to give her like a sledgehammer. Yes. And we got her back. Eula <laughs> uh, Scott Bino and Jeannie Yandel. Their show is Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace. Thanks for coming on Livewire. All right, Jeannie and Eula, uh, here at Livewire, we like to try to get to know our guests on a, a very deep, personal level. Uh, I think listeners to your show get to know you a little bit, but we want to try to like, get the listeners to our program to really get a sense of who you guys are. Yeah. To that end, uh, we have on stage an actual physical jar. Well, to be honest with you, we left the jar in Portland. <laughs> what we have on stage is an actual planter that had a okay. plant in it. Five minutes before showtime, I love we that. took the plant out. This is usually, we usually call this segment the jar of truth. This week we're calling it the planter of truth. Okay. <laughs> that feels very Seattle. Yeah, right. <laughs> so here's how it's going to work. Uh, we'll have uh, one of you, you guys can decide who, pull a question out of the planter of truth. Okay. And then you hand it? it to Elena Passarello, our announcer, who will read the question. And then Eula and Jeannie, we would like to get your honest answer to this question pulled from the planter of truth. Okay, Eula and Jeannie, can you ever sign a work card XOXO or is that weird? Mm, what age am I? If I'm I mean, 19 and I work at a restaurant, yes. Wow, yeah. I will say I've definitely done it on accident. Oh. Yeah. Yes, I have. Sort of my default for signing stuff is a single XO, which is not a good look for a 45-year-old woman. But <laughs> I have definitely done that on accident with work stuff. I yeah. have. I, this is a little different, but you know, uh, with text messaging, I have it set up on my computer so I can text mm -hmm. people. And my wife and I, we always end every message to each other with an XO. But sometimes mm -hmm. her, you know, the messages I'm sending her are like lined up with people I work with, and I warned everyone at the show. I was like, you're gonna get a 
text for me, signed XO. <laughs> I just want to put that out there. I promise you it's not intentional. It's not made to feel uncomfortable. It's just because I got my wires crossed. Mm -hmm. But I also am kind of feeling like, as a man, to challenge my own sense of masculinity sometimes. Maybe not to a woman, because I wouldn't want to create a weird energy. But signing more things XO and being like, yeah. Hugs and kisses. Yeah. Like, because I would normally not do that because I'd feel like it's like unmanly. But, but which one's a hug and which one's a kiss? I don't know. X is a kiss and O is a hug. I thought so. I thought is so. Is that too. true? I thought so too. The O is like a hug. Did everybody know that except me? Yeah. Mm. You wouldn't know either. I, I thought okay. so because I, I feel like I've had a moment where I was like, I could sign O O. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I don't know this person. That's hug, that hug? Well. Yeah. <laughs> this explains why I got someone pregnant at 17. <laughs> There's so much about the world. Of physical affection that I'm still learning. All right, Jeannie Yandel and Eula Scott Bino, thank you so much. Their show is Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace. Thank you. Hey, it's Luke. Uh, don't go anywhere because coming up, we have a conversation with Laura Pryor Palmer. Now, at one point, she was a nanny, and she decided that was not the life for her. So she quit, and she went to Mongolia, where she rode in this epic horse race called the Mongol Derby, uh, which was amazing, but also, she tells us, very lonely. And the highs and the lows are more extreme. It's like a microcosm of normal life. You're like so elated and joyful when you pass a yak or something that's new. And then you're just so, so sad when, you know, you're left alone by the riders in front. Stay with us because that conversation with Laura Pryor Palmer is coming up in a moment on Livewire from PRI. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. This week we are at the Fremont Abbey in Seattle. My name is Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. Uh, our theme this week is wild cards, and we asked the audience here in Seattle, how do you show your wild side? And we have been collecting those. What are you seeing, Elena? Here's one from Heidi. Heidi says, I'm in a choir, but I can't read music. <laughs> That is a stress dream. Yeah, it's scary. That's like the play that you don't know yes. the lines to. Yeah, that feels, that feels a little too wild for me. Uh. I, I, my recurring stress dream is I'm at a comedy club, and I find out that I'm supposed to do stand-up comedy, but I didn't know that that was going to happen. And because of the weirdness of how dreams work, my anxiety is not even around the jokes. It's around trying to find a pencil... Oh, so weird. I can write down some notes to myself of jokes. I think that means you have a lot of faith in yourself. So it's not just like, I'm going to be put in this situation that I can't handle. Yeah. It's, I'm going to be put in this situation. I could totally handle it unless yes. this one thing isn't. As they say, a poor craftsman always blames his tools. And in my <laughs> mind, this really comes down to the pencil messing up. Do you have another audience submission? Yeah. A way that the audience here shows their wild side? This one is from Matt P. And there's a story behind it. Okay. I, th I think I might know what the P in Matt P stands for. Matt says he shows his wild side by eating all the Flintstones vitamins at once when my mom is out of town. <laughs> and that is something that I did when I was like three years old. I ate a whole thing of Flintstone vitamins and then puked all over a white leather couch. And I, my brother, Matt Passarello, is here. What? So I have a feeling he's just roasting me from the stage. Uh, one more before we get our next guest out here. Here's one from uh, Barry. 
Barry shows Barry's wild side by staying up past 10 p.m. and not setting an alarm. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is flirting with danger, my friends. Man, what must it be like to really live? Um, this is Live Wire Radio. We're talking about wild cards this week. Our comedian this hour is truly a wild card when it comes to how his comedy brain works. He's done things like hiring a skywriter to write How Do I Land over Los Angeles. <laughs> he also jet skied down the Mississippi River, raising money for charity. He's currently at work on a project that I am obsessed with the idea of. It's called Comedians in Cars Getting Washed. It's, he's going to be putting stand-up comics in people's cars while they go through a car wash. Please welcome the hilarious and creative Kurt Brownaller to Livewire. Thank you, guys. So I just recently became a dad. Thank you. Yeah, I'm a dad now, so my life finally caught up with my looks. Just been looking like a dad for 40 years without kids. It was getting weird, honestly. They were like, that dad seems too drunk. Now it's like, that dad is too drunk. <laughs> and here's something no one will tell you if you have a kid. If you don't have kids and you're thinking about it, here's something no one will tell you. Have a child in a hospital, and then two days later, they're like, take it home. And you're like, no, we live in the hospital now. And they're like, no, you got to take it home. We're like, well, we don't know how to take care of it. They're like, Google it. It's not a problem. And then you're at home with a newborn and it's terrifying. Like your first kid, it's like, you, they, like they don't know how to do anything. And you're terrified because you don't know how to do anything. And like, 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 they don't know even how to breathe. Like breathing is brand new for a newborn infant. Like the normal breath pattern for an, a newborn is... <laughs> and then you're just lying next to it all night. You're like, ah! You never sleep and you go crazy. But the outfits are worth it. The outfits are worth it. Right after we brought my daughter home, someone gave us a onesie that had four pockets. I was like, what are these pockets for? She doesn't even know she has hands yet. And that's true. Like, a newborn infant, like, has no control over its arms. They don't know they're theirs. Like, who is doing this to me? And then you, like, tie them down. They're like, thank you. It's like, why swaddling works? But it's like, what are these pockets for? Her keys? Because her keys are like big and plastic and they're not gonna fit in such tiny pockets. I mean, just based on that key size alone, her car is 20 times the size of my car. All plastic, bright red and yellow. <laughs> but like, what? <laughs> But, like, what designer is just like, all right, what is this? A onesie for a baby? All right, babies, babies, babies. What do they do? What do they do? They're on the go. 
Uh, they poop their pants a lot. I've got it. Four tiny pockets, one quarter each. They can always use a laundromat. Make it! They're like one inch by one inch. I found it's perfect for a little bag of cocaine. Um, and nobody will frisk a baby. No one will frisk a baby. But also, like, like, like you have a child and then you become a dad, and I think they're two very th different things. I recently became a dad. Uh, like, there is a, there's a gas station down the street from my house. There's a sign on one of the pumps that says, please replace the nozzle before driving away with it in your car. And I took a photograph of that and posted it on the internet like three years ago, and it was like, look at these jerks driving away with these nozzles in their car. And then me and a bunch of strangers had a lot of fun making fun of all these jerks, you know. And uh, so when I drove away with a nozzle in my car six months ago, <laughs> I was ashamed. Uh, and I didn't even know I did it. Like, I didn't even know I did it. Like, I hopped in my car, blasting this American life, and just... <laughs> and took off and yanked it out. I had no idea I yanked it out. And then immediately pulled an illegal four-lane U-turn across four lanes, and all the oncoming traffic was like, bam, 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 bam. And I was like, oh, shut up, you church Nazis. It's a U-turn. I gave them all the middle finger while spraying gasoline across the street. And then made a right-hand turn and got on an even bigger high when I was going very fast. And this guy in this white pickup truck was like honking at me and I was like, it's a U-turn! And he's like, roll your window down. And I was like, what? And he's like, you drove away with the pump in your car. And I was like, what? So I did. Um, and then I was very ashamed. Uh, and I didn't know what to do, so like I kind of I pulled over to the side of the road, and then he pulled over too, and I was, and, and then I got out of my car, and then he got out of his car, and I was like very embarrassed, you know? It's like it's kind of like it's kind of like I soiled my pants, and then he followed me into the bathroom, like, "Hey, did you poop your pants? What's going on? How much how much poop is in your pants? Can you show me why you why you think you did that?" And I was like, what are you doing? And he was like, do you need help? And I was like, no! <laughs> then he was like mad, he got in his car and drove away. And then I was alone with my shame. And then I kind of like walked over and like took the pump out of my car and I was like, oh. And I like tapped it on the ground. I was like, oh, there's a lot of gasoline still in here. And then I was like, I can't put it in my car. I was like, on my way to pick up my daughter, it would have been filled with gasoline fumes. And I was like, what would be very useful right now is a pickup truck. And I just told that guy to go screw himself. <laughs> and so then I just like kind of left my car on the side of the road and walked it back all the way to the gas station. Both managers were just waiting for me like, what's wrong with you? And then I just laid it at their feet like a dead snake. And I was like, what do we do now? They're like, we don't know. There's no form for this. Nobody's ever done this before. And it uh, turns out it costs $350, uh, which is honestly a lot less than I thought. And they're designed to pop off, so you can just do it. <laughs> Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Kurt Brownholler. Support for Livewire comes from Alaska Airlines, offering flights with their global partners like Cathay Pacific, Emirates, Hainan Airlines, Japan Airlines, and Singapore Airlines to over 185 destinations in Asia. 
More information on how Alaska Airlines goes global at alaskaair.com. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. My name is Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. This week, we're at the Fremont Abbey in Seattle, and our theme is wild cards. Speaking of wild cards, in 2013, with no preparation, our next guest competed in the Mongol Derby, which is a thousand kilometer horse race in Mongolia, often called the toughest horse race in the world. By the way, she won the race. She was the youngest person to ever finish the race. She was the first woman to ever win it. It's all laid out in her book, Rough Magic, Riding the World's Loneliest Horse Race. Please welcome Laura Pryor Palmer to Livewire. Laura, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Let's go back to age 18 for you, Laura. Uh, you happened across a website devoted to the world's longest, toughest horse race. It's in Mongolia. I see those words, and I'm just going to the next website. That's my <laughs> approach. You did not. Something about this spoke to you. What was going on in your life at this moment that you were like, yes, I should go do that? I don't know. How many of you remember when you were 18 years old and had an excess of maturity or feeling of like you needed to do something other than go to school because I left high school a year earlier and I was I'd had a year off which is common in the UK and you work and then you save up and you travel so I just got sacked from a nannying job in Austria and I was just at a loose end and now let's can I just ask did the family you were a nanny for really have five Ferraris yeah Wow. They sound nice. <laughs> they, don't, they don't seem great in the book, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think I sacked myself, actually. I <laughs> um, yeah, so I saw this website, saw these green, high step grassland images of horses galloping into the distance with riders with backpacks on their backs, and I was like, that looks like freedom. It was not freedom, but it doesn't matter. It lured me in. So you go from being a nanny to, like, you're in Mongolia, and this is getting real. Like, it's actually happening. What was the scene like there your first day, the first day of the race? Of the race? So yeah. We had already been there for th- three or four days, okay. training, been in the city, Ulaanbaatar, and we were out on the step. There's and explain what the, because a lot of people maybe don't know what the yeah. Mongolian steppe is. Yeah, so the steppe is actually, it goes from Eastern Asia all the way to Eastern Europe. It's a high grassland, kind of like Denver level high, like a mile high, hard, hard to, like, you can get altitude sickness there sometimes. And it's, in summer at least, when I was there, grassy, green, huge, vast plains and, and ridges and, and varying landscape. We weren't in the desert. We were um, in a sort of treeless landscape for a lot of the race, and then suddenly in the forest, and then suddenly in floodplains. So we rode through a lot of different landscapes. Yeah. yeah. So, so, the, so Dave, by the way, we're talking to Lara Pryor Palmer. Uh, she rode in the Mongol Derby and actually won it. Her book is Rough Magic about that race. Um, so w- the first day you're actually racing... Like, what's going through your mind? Did you have any sense that, like, I might win this race? 
<laughs> no, God. So 40% uh, of competitors don't finish the race, so I just really wanted to finish. And I'd sat out naively thinking, oh, it'll be fine, I'll just follow everyone else. But on the first leg of the race, I, was in, I came in in last position. So there's 25 legs to this race. Yeah, you change horses for each section of the trip so that you write in the book that the, the, real, the competition is for the endurance on the part of the humans not the horses, because you're getting a right. new horse each time. Hopefully, yeah, and you get vet checked every time you hand your horse in to make sure that you haven't overridden it. Anyway, I came into the first station, miles behind everyone else, dehydrated, lost, ready to go home. Literally felt like that was, the 125th of the race was quite enough of a race for me, and that I should go home. <laughs> I'd been on my own, I had no one to talk to or share my complaints with, so I kind of just carried on in silence. No one had acknowledged my struggles, so well, I guess it doesn't really exist then, I haven't narrativized <laughs> it. Um... The, the horses themselves are fascinating to me because they're not like, these are not, a, a, this is not Seabiscuit. This is like, in the words of the Rolling Stones, these are wild horses, and they do want to drag you away. <laughs> like, these horses are, explain kind of what their deal is. Uh, they're so different. I mean, they really vary amongst themselves, but basically there's so many horses on the step that there's no way of, like, keeping them all in work. So they're wild, they roam the, the land free in their herds. Yeah, there's a picture the of you getting on one of the horses in the book, and I'm like, uh, this yeah. horse is not into this situation. Yeah. <laughs> like, they're regularly bucking you off, you're falling, like, it's not, this is not a national velvet. This is not the story of a, a love affair between a girl and her trusty horse. This is a wild animal that's like, how long do we have to do this, basically, right? Yeah, well, some of them were like, I love this, let's go. They were almost like beyond the race. They would just gallop nonstop to the next station and be fine. And then others were like, mm, and sort of lie down beneath me and be like, I don't <laughs> And then it's just sort of like, okay, well, can I persuade you to at least walk? And a little bit, and then, and then you're just together in dialogue. And you share your reluctance. You're like, actually, secretly, I don't want to be doing this race either, but please, can we do it together? And this then, is you talking to the horse yes. in literally the middle of nowhere. Uh, yeah, yeah. What are, I, I feel like I've been focusing so much on the negatives, but what are like the good parts? What are the kind of incredible moments in doing this? The book got written automatically without thinking it was a book because I was so stunned by being in this state of oblivion that the race like, put me into, and so many other riders who've done it would probably be able to speak to this and through this. You're very raw, you're incredibly tired, you're often quite hungry, and that puts you into a state that is extremely perceptive. Your memory is very alive. I remembered everything, every single minute of every day. And the highs and the lows are more extremes. It's like a microcosm of normal life. You're like so elated and joyful when you pass a yak or something that's new. And then you're just so, so sad when, you know, you're left alone by the riders in front. And it's just like so funny watching yourself yo-yo through the extremes uh, when there's no obvious way out. You kind of have to face your mind in a way, yeah. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. We are talking to Lara Pryor-Palmer, who competed and won the Mongol Derby 1,000-kilometer horse race. Uh, she wrote about it in a book, Rough Magic. Um, when did you get a sense that you were actually in contention for possibly winning the race? There's a, a, a woman in front of you named Devin, who honestly, like, this is not a book where it's like, and we all, we realize the friends we made along the way were the other riders. Like, you don't like this lady. I don't know if any of you remember, there's a particular schoolgirl cattishness that I still retained when I was 18 or 19. And my inability to control my dislike for people 
uh, was very like strong. So um, there was a girl called Devon at the start camp who was just she was she had grown up somewhere in Texas and she was on the U.S. national endurance riding team, a sport I'd never heard of, but was actually like the sport you wanted to have been doing if you wanted to take this race seriously. <laughs> and, and really, Ferrari nanny was not the proper preparation. <laughs> Anyway, she said things to ABC News like, oh, like they said, are you going to win this race? She was like, yes. And so she, basically she was just extremely focused and competitive. So when I heard that she was actually in the lead of this race on, at the end of day one, like miles ahead of any of us, I was so shocked that she was fulfilling her prophecy. And I was like, someone needs to stop this. <laughs> I never imagined it would have to be me because I was just like struggling to keep up that day. And then... It's hard to chart the race, really, as I say, oblivion. But I ended up riding with a, a true friend called Chloe. Yes. And she fell sick and had to be put on an IV drip at a station. So I was sent off ahead in second place, um, chasing Devon Horn. It's an amazing end to the book because you really sort of say that you kind of had this sense, or at least you write about having this sense of, like, if I win this race then I'm the person who won this race forever. And it's going to define you, and it's going to be something that, that is part of like, I mean, how would you not <laughs> talk about it, and how would it not be something that people knew about you, because it's such a kind of crazy thing. Um, and I'm wondering, how, how did it change your life? Externally, it really, like you just said, like people just want to talk about it, and then because from the outside there's some kind of weird faith in you, you start to believe what everyone's saying, even though you yourself had always thrived on like just ducking out of things and not succeeding. And it was really strange for me to experience that because I'd at school very much been like the kid that couldn't get it right, like a slightly hopeless case. Um, so that changed me, but more, more it was the wanting to write about it and then writing, writing, writing and not being able to stop writing about the whole thing and looking at myself afresh every six months, I'd put this like, Word document in a drawer and then bring it out again. I was like, oh my God, did I really think that? Let's change that. Like, let's question myself a little bit because this sort of fixed idea of me being the underdog with the high morals and Devon not was like, did not stand up at all one year later. I was like, this is ridiculous. This is so has, has Devon seen the book? I, d I don't know. I'm not in touch. You guys with aren't her. close? I hope she's well, but <laughs> I, I, I'm not really on social media. Um, I think Facebook is where she is most prominent, and I'm not there. Yeah. Of course, Devin's on Facebook. That's classic Devin. <laughs> classic Devin. Classic Devin. Uh, the book is Rough Magic. Laura Pryor-Palmer, thank you so much for being on Livewire. <laughs> You're listening to Livewire Radio from PRI. This week we're at the Fremont Abbey in Seattle, and we will be right back. Hey, special thanks this episode to listeners Dawn Parker of Portland, Oregon, and Danielle Benj of Vancouver, Washington. Dawn and Danielle are part of the Livewire member community, and they generously support us with a donation each month. And we are very, very thankful for that support because it is how we are able to do this show. So thanks, Don and Danielle, for making Livewire possible. 
Welcome back to Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. We're at the Fremont Abbey in Seattle, and this week we are talking about wild cards. Uh, here's a wild card move. How about being a gay country music band in 1973? Woo! Patrick Haggerty knows what that's like because that's when he formed his band, Lavender Country, quite possibly the first openly gay country band in America, certainly that we've heard of. The reception was chilly at times. <laughs> Thankfully, though, things have changed, and the band is still around to see that. In fact, they're releasing their first new music since they formed all those years ago. Please welcome Lavender Country to Livewire. So what was the reception like for Lavender Country when, when you started this up? Well, I'm not, I'm not only gay and country, but I'm a radical socialist. Um, that's who I am. Right, but I mean, were people, and like, did you go behind enemy lines with the band? Did you guys go try to play, like, somewhere that wasn't Capitol Hill in Seattle? Oh, no. No, there's nobody would even dream of having us. Really? Oh, no. Not with the songs I was writing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had to make a choice in 1970 and 71 about whether I was going to go be a country music singer, or whether I was going to be a radical Marxist screaming fill-in-the-blank. I had to make that choice. And I did not have the uh, option of doing both. And I decided that I was going to be a, a radical activist and that I was going to forego a career in country music singing. Did you regret that decision at some point? Never. Never, because look at me now, right? <laughs> yeah. Never. No, I never, I never looked back on that decision because I knew it was the right decision for me. And also, the beauty of Lavender Country was that we knew that it was hopeless commercially, right? It was idiocy do you think you could get anywhere in 1973 singing Marxist gay country, okay? <laughs> <laughs> that was not going to pan. <laughs> but what? somebody put one of my songs that's a political protest song with an unmentionable title on YouTube, and I didn't know that. Somebody else heard it who was a music aficionado in Chicago a straight man, and he took it to a straight label in North Carolina, of all places, right? Uh. They, were, they bit on Lavender Country, hook, line, and sinker, both the guys who ran this label. What's the name of the label? The name of the label sounds gay, but they're not. The name, <laughs> <laughs> the name of the label is Paradise of Bachelors. <laughs> but, it's a quote from a Herman Melville novel. And we have, um, after 46 years, we have a new album. Uh, and uh, the name of the album is Blackberry Rose and Other Songs and Sorrows. This song is about trying to figure out the difference between red-hot sex and real human intimacy. Anybody ever in trouble with that topic? 
Well, it was a bombshell topic for gay men in the 1970s, let me tell you that. It's called, I Can't Shake the Stranger Out of You. It's on our new album. You're hot to trot for the next pack of room. Who's got the stuff to put a saddle on you and ride you higher on the fires of desire than you ever knew? All our favorite fantasies have come to an end. We'll be waking up tomorrow needing a friend. Cause I can't shake the stranger out of you. 
A sweet, a sweet song with a message. That is Lavender Country, Lavender Country. right here on Livewire. Yeah. All right, that is going to do it for our show this week. Thank you so much to our guests, Jeannie Yandel, Yola Scott Bino, Laura Pryor Palmer, Kurt Brownaller, and Lavender Country. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Foley, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. Tim Harkins is our production director. And Christian Sager is our marketing associate. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is A. Walker Spring, Sam Tucker, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director, on-air mix by Corey Schreppel. And thanks, as always, but especially this week, to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members this week. Thanks to member Carol Friedman of Oakland, California. For more information about our show or how you can get our podcast or newsletter, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. PRI Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.